כולנו מבינים שיש לייצר התארגנות מפלגתית אחת גדולה, או לכל היותר שתי מפלגות בינוניות בגודלן. הסיכון בריצה מפוצלת של מפלגות, שבכל יום עלולות לרדת מתחת לאחוז החסימה, הוא עצום, ואסור לנו לקחת אותו. Welcome to episode six of the Election Overdose podcast at Haaretz. It's February 5th, bright and early. We're coming to you a day late this week, but we have a really good excuse. And no, it's not the dog ate my ballot, not because we OD'd on vaccines here in Israel. Actually, to get serious for a moment, we have crossed the grim threshold of 5,000 corona deaths in Israel. In fact, the reason why we were late this week is because we're waiting for the exciting midnight deadline last night when the party registration for the upcoming elections closed. So this is a special episode, a little bit different, because we're going to get deep down inside the mess of the Israeli political system after the leaders, candidates, and all the party configurations are now final, and we're going to break it all down. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, here with two people who know more about this than probably anyone else, my co-host Angel Pfeffer and our guest Haaretz.com's assignments and U.S. news editor Amir Thibon. Their combined knowledge is unrivaled, so you're in good hands. We're going to start with just some bare bones, quick updates, mostly on surveys that will set us up for understanding how the party system looks now after the list are closed. Okay, so let's start with the number one party. Likud still ranks top in all the polls. It seems kind of unshakable. The range is about 27 to 32 seats And in six of the last 10 polls over the last two weeks, Likud has actually been at the higher end of 30 seats or above. Something very stable going on in Likud. Anshul, what's next? Well, I think the major development uh, besides Likud's not developing uh, uh, poll range is... Enviably not developing from, from their uh, perspective. Well, I think that, we, and we should talk about this, I think Netanyahu was expecting by now to get more of a bump from his vaccination uh, campaign. Spoke about this weeks and weeks ago when uh, the vaccination rollout began that this would start pushing Likud's uh, ratings upwards. And I think from the very frustrated Netanyahu we saw on Tuesday evening in the press conference, I think that is, is, isn't working yet for him and he's worried. It's so, okay. As long as Likud and Akim keep talking about we're going to get 35 to 40 seats, then they all seem happy. Well, they may, they may yet and there's still seven weeks to go. But I think that they expected by now to already to see the vaccinations giving them a boost in the polls. And as you said, they're static, which is good because they're not going down. They're still the largest party, but it's bad for them because they should have been on an upward trajectory. But I think the main development this week is that the second largest party and therefore the main challenger to Netanyahu, that mantle seems to have moved away from uh, Gidon Sal, the leader of the New Hope Party, towards a more, uh, by now we can say, veteran and experienced campaigner, uh, Yair Lapid's Yeshatid, who has, I think, started to pull ahead in the polls. I know as a pollster, you may have some reservations on, on this early call, but it looks like, at least in the last week or so, that Yair Lapid is starting to establish a lead on Sao, it may change, but the dynamic right now seems to be in Lapid's favor. Yes, the dynamic has gone in his favor, considering that when Gidon Sar's party was established, it was running ahead of Lapid, generally somewhere between 15 and 20 seats. And now Lapid has caught up and pulled ahead in a number of polls, but by a very, very thin margin. In fact, I consider it at this point almost an even breakdown. We've had two polls showing them exactly tied for 16 seats. And I actually see that as essentially the breakup of blue and white's 
votes between their center-left and their center-right-leaning candidates. Well, when we look at Lapid, Saar, and uh, I would also put some of Bennett's votes in that basket, you definitely see those 35 mythological seats for uh, blue and white that Dalia just mentioned, you know, spreading all over the place. And the challenge for Lapid will be, can he get at least a majority of that vote towards him? Can he get to the 25, 26 potential that I think does exist for a party that would be able to say we're going one-on-one against Netanyahu's Likud, despite, but not there yet. Despite Yair Lapid's mythological ceiling that we hear so much about that he can't cross 2019, was the best tally he received in his first election, Yishatid's first election in 2013. And that seems to be almost a psychological thing. Can Yair Lapid break 20 this time? Well, I think there was a stretch of polling back in 2017 where he did go above 20. And yes, because up, he rivaled Zionist Union, which was uh, go, had become yeah, Labour again. Her- Her- Herzog was going down. He was and then Avi Gabay came. And then uh, Benny Gantz. But by the time Avi Gabay came, labor was already way down. Anyway, we're going into ancient history. It it was going up. But but I think... Nothing happened before 2019 in this country. (laughs) The potential for him, I think, does exist. And what he would answer to what you just said, Anshel, is that pollsters have historically gotten Yeshatid wrong. And usually on the downside. That's his answer. I don't know if it's correct, it's but true I've, from twi- it's true I've heard that line many times from him. It's true in 2013, not so much since then. But I think let's go to the most dramatic change. We mentioned this a little bit last time when it was still uh, we weren't sure if it was a trend. But the Labour Party, which was flatline below the threshold for the entire first four or five weeks of this campaign, roughly, has now been going over the threshold in most surveys over the last week. Basically, after January 24th, uh, and since certainly since Meirav Michaeli was elected leader of the party, and one poll shows them actually with eight seats. So that's a, a, a clear upward trend. Along with that trend for Labour comes the concern, where are these seats coming from? And some of the polls indicate that they're coming from merits, and Labour and merits seem to be almost indistinguishable in this election. They've yet to establish any kind of distance between each other. They both say we're historic parties with our own ideologies and our own constituencies. It's rather hard to distinguish between them. Eretz Nederet, uh, Channel 12's uh, satire show, had uh, Merav Micheli and Nitzan Horowitz, Meretz leader, basically saying the identical things simultaneously to kind of show how it's re- it is at this point. But hard the fact to work, is... Hard to, hard to work out who's who... And there are answers to that, and each party can explain the difference between them. But the fact is that they do share a a certain reservoir of voters in common. And the question is, will Labour's resurgence under Merav Michaeli, will it jeopardize Merit's chances of crossing the threshold? It's a very good question, but the fact is that ever since Merav Michaeli was elected, Merit's has not gone under the threshold in any polls, which is impressive because it means that all the rise for labor that we're seeing is not coming at Merit's expense so far. Some it is it a possibility. Has, some of it has because Merit's has gone down, I think, from <clears throat> six to four, five. Six was a point. while ago. Six was a while ago. Merit's has been getting four or five uh, quite stable. I have to say, you know, as a left-wing voter, um, I'm extremely Shh. concerned about uh, this uh, situation uh, that has arised with uh, Merit's and labor for several <laughs> reasons. First of all, obviously, you know, what you discussed, Dalia, maybe one of them going under the threshold. But uh, another issue, and you know, this will take us a little bit to the right, but one of the advantages that the center-left bloc could have enjoyed if there was a direct competition between Lapid and Netanyahu would be Netanyahu panicking, telling all the right wing to call us behind him, and then sending one of the right wing lists, for example, the Smotrich, 
בן גביר, under the threshold. This is what he did to Naftali Bennett in 2019 in the first round. He was so concerned about Gantz getting more seats than Likud, you know, blue and white back then, the big blue and white getting more seats, that he, with his own panic, sent Bennett under the threshold. This is not going to happen this time, because with labor and merits fighting for dear life, Lapid is not going to be able to, to coalesce the entire left behind him. And that way, it will always keep Netanyahu with the larger margin. Let's wait to the last two weeks before the election, before we say Netanyahu is not going to panic and start cannibalizing his allies. I mean, yeah, seven weeks true. to go. Netanyahu usually yeah. does the, the famous Gewalt campaign in the last two weeks. And I wouldn't uh, bet on him not doing it this time as well. Okay, I want to also talk about some of the parties that made headlines just a few weeks ago and what happened to them in the polls, because it will help us understand what happened with the party list. I'm talking about the party Telem by Moshe uh, Bougia Alon. The, I forgot the about Israeli, that one. <laughs> uh, almost, we almost forgot about it already. The Israelis led by Ron Khuldait Nufa, led by Ofer Shelach, Dani Atom with his older people veterans party. These parties basically evaporated. None of them were crossing the threshold, and that's it for pre-party polls. But now we understand what the landscape looked like going into uh, the closing of the lists last night. So now let's get deeper into the politics. So it's Friday morning. As Dalia mentioned earlier, we usually record this podcast on, on Thursday morning. We waited another 24 hours so we could see the aftermath of... Thursday midnight, the, the big deadline for filing candidates this with the Central Election Commission. And we, Dalia, I know you'll be very disappointed to hear this. We haven't broken the number of, the largest number of parties ever registered. I was kind of hoping election. we would, I have to admit. I just wanted to be able to say Israel has so many parties, even more than last time. But you tell us the final 39 number. 39 this time. 39. What was the record? Remind 41. Me? 41. Close, but no cigar. But obviously, of these 39 parties, nearly three quarters have no... realistic expectation of, uh, of of passing the electoral threshold 3.25 percent of the total vote which without which you won't have members in the next Knesset so we're talking about roughly a dozen parties maybe 13 with some kind of a chance we'll obviously point out who are the ones most at risk in a moment but we've ended now one of the most crucial stages of the Israeli election campaign we know now who is running who what their party lists are. These things can't be changed from now on. This is now the fateful uh, last stage of the campaign. Amir, what, what stuck out for you in this uh, mad dash to Thursday night? Um, the tragedy of the egos on the center left. Um, some of the parties that Dalia mentioned, um, all of them by very talented people, people that I personally appreciate. Actually, each and every one of them, Bogi Alon, And uh, Ron Khuldai, who I think is the best mayor in Israel, hands down. And I think for people Apparently in Tel Aviv... Apparently he thought so too. Well, you know, I think for people in Tel Aviv, uh, you know, I'm not a resident of the city, but my parents are and many of my friends. I think they're happy that he's, uh, most of them are, that he's staying in the, in the mayor's office. Ofer Shelach was a great parliamentarian and a good political strategist and I think was very helpful for Yair Lapid. And of course, Avi Nissenkorn, who was a good justice minister under Gantz in the Netanyahu coalition and went with Khuldai and uh, did good uh, work to protect the justice system from Netanyahu. All of them could have served the center-left bloc quite well if they had found their place in the existing parties, in Yeshatid, maybe in Labor, or in Meretz. It doesn't even matter. They could have fit in any of those places. And instead, in a show of <laughs> unbelievable um, 
egoism and stupidity uh, on their behalf. They just went down with nothing to show uh, and disappeared from the system. I think what's incredible here is the short lifespan of an Israeli center-left party now. I, I, I calculated it's 36 days uh, <laughs> since uh, Ron Khulday's Israeli party was launched. That's you know five weeks in a day. That was the lifespan. Ofer Shalach Tznufa did a bit better, 42 days. So... That's an impressive achievement, yes. lasting a week longer than uh, and you're the not in, Day's and party. Danny Atom's party, the, 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 old, uh, you know, the, the old guys' party, the veterans, uh, did, how much did they last? I, didn't, I, I, I barely little. noticed that. But what existence. is amazing is what we pointed out before. Think of the Israeli political system and how young it is. What we just said before about Yair Lapid is true. As somebody who's been in Israeli politics now uh, in Knesset for seven year, eight years, that makes him a veteran. From 2013 to 2021. Eight eight years. years. Point is, we have a very young political system. And I want to point out that there are extremely few parties that haven't changed. In other words, if you're looking from the voters' perspective, you know, think, who am I? Who is the party that I identify with? Who do I traditionally vote for? There are very few options. It's basically Likud and Shas. All the others have either changed leader, right? Even Torah Judaism has a new leader. Uh, even though it's basically a stable party. I mean, not a new... Well, it, I mean, th- there is no leader of United Torah Judaism. Each right. MK represents a different faction um, amongst all Orthodox Jewry. But it's true that originally the Gudat Yisrael Hasidic representative of the Ger Hasidic sect was always in the first spot, and they've, they've, they've flipped they've around flipped. this time. So in a matter of speaking, that's a change. Other than Likud and Shas, every other party, correct me if I'm wrong, has had either, either a change of leader, broken up, merged or uh, collapsed altogether. Or running on a different ticket, like Meretz is, you know, still Nitzan Horowitz, but they're running independently now. They changed some of the names on the list. Um, and broke up from this bizarre merger, this monstrous Frankenstein merger yeah, they had Oli last Levy, time. who is now in Likud. I mean, a lot, uh, a lot is moving in those parties. Okay, let's talk about all those parties that broke up. I mean, I just think it's interesting because these the, the map looked so different last time. Blue and white is still there, but of course, blue and white went through its big collapse when they went into the government and broke up with Yeshatid. So Yeshatid and blue and white are no longer together. Joint list is no longer together. Angel, do you want to talk about that? Because I know you've been following it very closely. Well, first of all, blue and white is, it's not just the fact that they were three parties running together. It's the manner in which it happened. Telem has now officially disappeared. Blue and white is literally Benny and a few Friends. <laughs> Benny and the Jets. A, a few anonymous, I mean, lit- almost anonymous MKs who for, who for some unknown reason are running. We have to mention that it's true the lists now are closed, they can't be changed, but a party can still drop out. And there are people around Gantz who are saying that if on the day or two days before the election he sees that the polls are all emphatically saying that blue and white won't pass uh, the threshold, then he will disband the party. Also, Yaron Zelich has been saying that very openly. But the polls leading up to February the 4th are less important. He's more interested in the polls leading up to March 23rd. But let me just stop you on that and point. And then he'll decide whether or not to drop out. Party lists can no longer change. They can no longer merge or change their candidates. There's only one thing they can do, and that's drop out. Why is that so important? Because, obviously, if a party runs all the way and people vote for it, but not enough people. They don't cross the threshold. Those votes are all lost, and therefore they're all competing with each other. Labour and Merits are competing for each other for the vote. They're competing directly with each other, but they're also reliant upon each other getting into the Knesset, so their block together will be bigger. So the pressure on parties, so especially blue and white, but there'll be pressure on some other parties who we'll mention as well in a bit, 
to drop out towards the end, if it seems almost certain that they're not going to cross the, the threshold, is huge. And uh, you mentioned the joint list. So that's another place where there will be pressure because the joint list is still running in this election, but the joint list, which used to be a list, as its name says, of four different, very different parties, which they with only one thing in common, that they all represent the Arab-Israeli community, which is a very disparate community. And suddenly the voters there have different agendas and therefore four different parties. There'll be three parties now in the joint list, the Khadash, uh, Balad, and Ta'al, led by Ahmed Tibi, but Ra'am, the Islamist party, led by Mansour Abbas, has irrevocably split from the joint list. They'll be running on their own this time, and Dalia, you've worked closely with many of the people in joint list over the years. I consulted with joint list on the last election for their Hebrew campaign for the Jewish vote. There were reports that in three different polls, Mansour Abbas's party doesn't cross the threshold. Amir, do you want to? Well, I mean, Mansour Abbas, Ram barely passed the threshold in April 2018 when they ran together with Balad and they barely, barely passed the threshold. That says a lot about Mansour Abbas's chances to pass the threshold alone. And also, I think it was a different situation back then because the split back then between Ram and Balad and then Hadash and Tal, the split within the joint list, it wasn't seen as something that surrounds the politics of Benjamin Netanyahu's rule. It was more ideological uh, and some of it also was seen as petty politics between parties that are just, you know, vying for power. But this time, Mansour Abbas has taken a split from the rest of the joint list and he's going completely alone basically on the issue of cooperating with Benjamin Netanyahu. Of course, there's also a, a religious element to it that the other parts of the joint list are more secular and are more tolerant towards gay rights and feminism. I, I don't... Not just tolerant, activists. I mean, Aydatou Musliman has been for yes. years an activist yeah, for from, gender, Let's say from activist to tolerant. There's a whole... There's a whole uh, um, on LGBT, it's probably more an issue of tolerance yeah, and yeah. testing but, the water. Uh, Whereas Mansour Abbas is, is much more conservative. But I think the main issue that is highlighted in his split is the relationship that his party has established with Netanyahu and the right wing. And that's something that I think is, is not going to help him win more votes in this election. Because if there are Arab voters who want to cooperate with Likud and Netanyahu, they can just vote for the original. They can go and vote for Likud and Netanyahu. And I think Likud is actually going to get more votes in the Arab sector this time than in previous elections. You do see that coming up in polls. I don't know if a lot of uh, votes, I don't know if it's going to be significant, but but somebody who is an Arab-Israeli voter, and this is the, the issue that they care about, cooperating with the powers that be working with the existing government, why vote for Mansour Abbas? You can just vote Likud. Well, true, but I mean, it's interesting that I've heard right-wing commentators uh, trying to make a distinction between Mansour Abbas, who seems to want to cooperate and go into government with Netanyahu, versus the other parties of the joint list who are rejectionists. But we forget that just in the previous election cycles, it was the joint list under Ayman Uda who for the first time openly recommended Benny Gantz to be prime minister, which but, was but, a big but, deal but at the Benny time. But Benny Gantz, for, for people who make this lousy argument, is an, an, the enemy of Israel himself, So because he's threatening the, the crown of the Netanyahu family. And this is, I think it, in itself, it's an amazing development that the, the Islamist list of the joint list is now suddenly the moderate voice that the Netanyahu supporters are heralding. I remember still in the first election of 2019 in April when there were two lists, Balad and Ra'am. And you know, Balad is the most nationalist of the different parts of the, the joint list. And then Hadash and Tal were seen as the more moderate on issues of, like we said, feminism and LGBT rights. I remember some right-wing commentators saying the fact that Hadash and Tal are getting more seats in the polls than Balad and Ram is a testament that Arab Israelis are not so extreme and they're looking for ways to, to find uh, it, it, into the mainstream. I think some of those same commentators today are going to herald Mansour Abbas. Another part of this development is we're seeing 
relatively more prominent spots on lists of the non-Arab parties for uh, for Arab candidates. We see it with Merits, we're seeing it with Labour, we're seeing it even with Likud, and we'll mention some of those candidates in, in a moment. Although Merits generally always had at least one or two Arabs. But now they have two in the top five, which is... That, which is, their, is own, which is their best way to pass the electoral is, threshold. A, their best That's way to the, pass the threshold. And B, it, that is unprecedented. Two yeah. uh, Arab Israelis in the top five, in, in fourth and fifth spot. That, that let Merit's never had in the past. And uh, I think we should but, start actually mentioning some of the new and interesting candidates. Well, in, before we do that, we, before we do that, though, we have not talked about one of the most exciting developments, which is the national religious parties. There's been all this drama in the national religious camp. I don't think this is very exciting. I think this is very. It's actually. How very, is it that I'm excited about this and you're not? Well, first of all, big because, drama. Can I, I say I'm frightened by it? Okay. To be, to excited, be clear. frightened, disgusted, interesting. Disgusted. <laughs> well, Tell us what happened. First of all, because originally I, you know, I, I was born in that community, and I think the fact that the national religious community has almost almost without a murmur has accepted the Kahanism in into its what, what is now the only uniquely uh, national religious list. I mean Naftali Bennett's Yamina also has that component, but it presents itself as a more as a more diverse list, which also includes secular and traditional it's candidates. Trying. But tell us what happened. So as we, we've spoken so much about the threshold until now, so this is probably the main threshold-related event. Actually, four splinter parties, Jewish Home, which is the descendant of the venerable National Religious Party, the Mafdal, National Union, Betel Smotrich's ultra-nationalist, hard-right religious list, uh, Jewish Power, which is the descendant of Kach, Kahana, the outlawed, uh, original uh, Jewish supremacist movement and another smaller, much less uh, known and probably very, very minor in, in the vote is going to get. Noam, uh, officially homophobic, they won't use the word homophobic, they'll obviously call it family values, but an official homophobic party. All four of these parties were not crossing the threshold, in, I think in any poll that, that, that I've seen. But together, they do have a, a chance of winning four or five seats in the Knesset if two or three of them get together. And those seats, if they're going to belong to any bloc, they'll belong to Benjamin Netanyahu's bloc. And Netanyahu has been pressuring Jewish power leader Itamar Ben-Gvir and National Union leader Betalus Smotrich incessantly for the last few weeks to merge their list. And it's interesting that Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, even though they have very similar politics, can't even sit in the same room together. They hate each other's guts for some reason. So are there any fewer egos on the right wing and religious side than there are on the center-left side? No, I think ego is, is you know, is crosses the political but, spectrum. But Angela, I think Dala is asking the right question because ego or not, strategically, they have made the responsible and right decision, which is to run because under the one Because roof. the difference here is not there is less or more ego on the left and right. The difference on the right is that there has been a Netanyahu who is there's working a as a, there's there's a, a manager. manager. There yes. is a responsible grown-up as far as the right wing is concerned. Now, the list of gifts he showered on Smotrich to agree to accept Benkvin. Once again, Smotrich's problem was not an ideological problem. It was a personal issue. His ego didn't want to share place with Benkvin's ego. But at the end of the day, Netanyahu gave them such a long list of inducements that they couldn't say no. He gave them two spots on Likud's list. So basically, they, in addition to whatever they win, or even if they don't cross the threshold, there'll still be two representatives of their parties, thanks to uh, Netanyahu giving them spots on his list. He gave them the most coveted uh, seat on the Judicial Appointments Committee. There are only two MKs sitting on that 
extremely important. I, 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 have, I have to interject here just, you know, to give an idea to our, at least to our American listeners. I don't have an example for every country, but this is like putting, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> to be the most important vote on the appointment of judges in the United States. This is what Netanyahu is doing in Israel right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, he's giving the far right a chance to influence what the Israeli courts and the Supreme Court will look like for years to come, assuming Netanyahu wins the election and has the power to give uh, a seat to uh, to this basket of deplorables on the on the judicial appointments. Of committee. course, promises made and before elections are not always kept, even to in, I, people I, I, within the I camp. beg to defer, and I want to quote a very smart uh, writer uh, who writes for us on Haaretz.com, Anshul Pfeffer, maybe you know some of the listeners have heard, um, wrote this week that the only people that Netanyahu does keep promises to are the ultra-Orthodox, basically the religious parties, because with them there is a very clear deal of support for Netanyahu, despite the corruption and despite everything that has happened here under COVID, in return for power. And that's a deal he has been respecting. Unlike deals with the center-left and with secular Israelis that he doesn't care about, he knows that with the rabbis you don't mess. And we'll mention another deal that Netanyahu kept this week, but that's in a moment. But just to get back to Benkvir and Smotrich and, and their link, and Netanyahu has obviously promised them cabinet portfolios. And at the end, Smotrich, who really wanted to go on his own because he, he wants to see himself as the leader of religious and national Zionism and doesn't really want Benkvir intruding on his on his show agreed to this only about 30 hours before the deadline they they signed an agreement and you know we have to remember what kahanism is we, we use we use different words we call them racists we call them anti-arabs look there are lots of racists in israeli politics it's not like israeli politics besides kahana or before kahana had no racism in it but there was a consensus over kahana being untouchable in the one single term that he served in the Knesset between 1984 and 1988. Every time he got up to speak, all People the left. MKs of all the parties left. He was he, he was literally an untouchable. And 1984, we remember, was the closest uh, uh, Knesset election until 2019, when the blocs were essentially equal, Likud against Labour. Likud would not, under any circumstances, consider including... Kahana's one seat in their block. It was simply as if there were 119 Knesset members and one of them was not to be mentioned. And for today's Likud leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, to basically open the doors of acceptability to detoxify Jewish power, which is Kahana and Kach 3.0, I think it's a shameful thing, and it's a shameful thing for, for religious Zionism, which is a community that, yes, it's a right-wing community mainly, it's a settlers community, but there were many years which they rejected Kahanism. I remember in 1990 when Kahana was assassinated, all the yeshivas of the national religious community forbid their students to attend his funeral. I mean, it was clear there's Kahanism and that's not us. And now Kahanism is part of religious Zionism, is part of the right wing camp. And you don't hear anybody in the right wing complaining about it and anymore. It's been happening for, I think, a few years. One thing I want to get back to is the size of Bezalel Smotrich's ego, because apparently he was practically bullying Chagit Moshe, who was the head of the Jewish Home Party, and she did not give in to the bullying. He wanted their parties to run together. He wanted to be the top figure. She said he threatened me that he would destroy her in the media and the polls. So in the end, she did something quite unusual, which is essentially pull out of the race and throw her support behind Naftali Bennett. I'm not sure how significant it is in, in numbers of votes right now, but for historical and official and legal reasons, Chagit Moshe is the successor of the leaders of the National Religious Party. She even has the rights to their single letter uh, symbol on the on the ballot papers, Bet, which is 
it's, it's a useful thing to have when old people come in and they're, they're used to voting for one party. And basically what Smotrich wanted was for her to agree to eliminate every remnant of that old party and for her people for she and her and, and her colleagues who will be part of his list would run as members of his party of national union and that was as we said like one ego trip too far and even Chagit Moshe was not uh, known for being a very independent-minded uh, politician she refused and at the very last moment this was the last development i think before before the deadline she said we're not going to run in this election which in itself is a historic thing this is a party which has run in every single election since 1949 has been a part of knesset and governments and done many historic things in israel's political history she said we're not going to run this time but we are here and we're supporting bennett and we're going to give bennett our letter don't know how many but, 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 old Mafdalniks are will, will only vote for a letter saying bet on it, but I think but, 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 it's significant. But, but, but then after that, she went on a television interview, and you know this can happen. It was late at night; everybody's tired. But then she said, "We support Netanyahu to be prime minister." And 15 yes. minutes later, she she put out a statement she, saying, "No, better. actually, support Naftali Bennett." Now, as we wrap up this segment on the national religious, I just want to point out that we've talked about what four or five parties uh, representing the national religious community. Let's just remember they're about 10 percent of the overall Israeli electorate, and they break their votes up with Likud as well. So we're looking at quite a small portion, you know, they're a slightly bigger portion of the Jewish population, 12, 13%, but very small segment spread out over too many parties. But we so can expect uh, also ultra-Orthodox, mainly young Orthodox voters to vote for the Bengvirus Motrich list. There is a sort of a merge between the far right, religious far right and the Orthodox community, and we're seeing that happen. And we and, and I know from, from people I'm talking to in United Torah Judaism that they're very worried about this development. What to me is um, a bit annoying, and this connects directly to what you said, Dalia, that this is a small community, and the fact that they uh, break their votes between religious right-wing parties, Likud, etc., that's fine. But the center-left parties, in every election, stupidly, in my opinion, tried to win some of the votes of the uh, religious Zionist population. We saw it with the Kaholavan. We are seeing it even now with the Ashatid. It never happens. And the only thing that happens as a result is that these parties put religious, sometimes right-wing people, in their lists to the Knesset. It barely brings them any votes. And sometimes it brings Netanyahu the one or two extra hands that he needs in order to stop the center-left from forming a coalition. It's suicidal, and it's based on some fantasy that because the religious Zionist community historically had some connection with the Labour Party back in you know the 50s, the 60s, maybe we can somehow find that bridge again. It's, it's not going to happen. And I think Gantz was the one who got hit the hardest by this phenomenon. Blue and White had many people who grew up in the religious Zionist education system, who had religious Zionist background, and they were the first ones to go with Netanyahu and to stop the option of an alternative government. Right. Okay, now I want to talk about uh, about people because we've talked about parties up until now. And one of the interesting things about the list so far is that there are a bunch of new people, but there's also a long parade of people who have left from the previous Knesset. I'm going to run through a quick list of people who left and I want to hear your responses to whether it matters, who you're going to miss and who we're not going to miss. Let's start with Avi Nissenkorn, Amir Peretz, Itzik Shmuli, Ofer Shelach, Itzhak Cohen, Omer Yankelovich. I mean, these are Run, these are uh, sort of across the board from left to right. Um, starting with Anshul, who are you going to miss? I'm 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 not going to miss anyone because politics <laughs> is all about the changing cast. And if you can't survive in politics, then you shouldn't be there. And it's good to have this this turnover. And I don't think I, I don't think anybody specifically would say 
he's a huge or she is a huge loss. To, what about a small business. loss? I can think of so, one who's a small loss. So I'm going to talk about two, I think, two significant departures to me. One is Itzik Shmuley. Now, Itzik Shmuley, people are very uh, divided about him. Some people think he's a wonderful social justice activist. In the short time that he's been welfare affairs minister, he's done a good job. On the other hand, people are very angry with him for joining the Netanyahu coalition. But it's, it's, I think it's really interesting that Itzik Shmuley and Stav Shafir, who's already left the Knesset uh, a couple of years ago, were the two major uh, representatives of the social justice protests back in 2011. They both were seen as future leaders of Israel. And young both, guard, yeah. The young guard of labor, the young guard of the left. And I think that both of them uh, have shown that passion and, and being articulate and attractive and everything else that, that a politician does need, you still need it's political experience and a certain kind of integrity. And I think that both of them have failed in, in that sense. And next thing, we won't have a social justice activist. Another departure, which I think is interesting, is Yitzhak Cohen and Meshulam Nahari both leaving Shas, part of, part of the old guard of Shas. You would expect Arya Derry to want to have some experienced people in his party to that they could fill the mirrors, suppose, that they, they know how to run things in, in parliament, how to run committees. But Arya Derry is very worried that if Netanyahu loses and if he once again himself is, is, is facing corruption charges, there'll be uh, pressure on him to move aside and let someone else lead chess. So he's already... Arranging pushing, the cards. He's pushing already the older Arranging people around and keeping only young MKs who have all grown up under his shadow, all still in, in his thrall. Perhaps one of them will be a caretaker leader or perhaps none of them will dare to become a leader instead of Derry. Amir, who are you going to miss? Um, Gabi Ashkenazi, the foreign minister from Blue and White, who is not running. The Blue and White as a party is running again under Gantz, but Ashkenazi, who in my opinion was the most talented politician that remained in that party, is not running. And I think we can understand why the blue and white experiment failed. The decision to go into the Netanyahu government was um, a very bad decision for them. Um, but I think Ashkenazi, um, he, he will be missed for the center left bloc. I think, first of all, if you compare him to Gantz, I think they're worlds apart in their political abilities, in their speaking abilities, uh, in their uh, television performances. Gantz- I have to say in political gossip circles, that was the consensus that Gabi Ashkenazi was a stronger figure in blue and white could have been a better leader. Than you you just need to watch an interview that Gantz does on television and then a subsequent interview by Ashkenazi. Gantz, you, you don't survive an interview without some gaffe or funny said. Not that I think it's so important, by the way. I, I think you can have a great leader, your defense minister, even prime minister, who says stupid, funny stuff on television in interviews. It's not the you most have important thing. the president of the U.S. who regularly yes, b- exactly. makes little mistakes. And has- Joe Biden, you yeah. mean. Yeah. Um, of I'm, I'm, the previous one I'm not even talking about. But I think Ashkenazi was much more coherent and impressive in that sense. I think there's also a, a, a more of a consensus among people who closely follow the defense uh, issues that he was also a better chief of staff for the military. And I think also that he has more clear um, center-left political beliefs in his core than Gantz. And I think he played a bigger role, for example, within the Netanyahu government of working against Netanyahu's annexation dreams and putting an alternative to it. So I think he will be missed on the center-left. I'm, I'm wondering who is the... You said you, you, you were thinking of a small loss as well two minutes ago. Because I was never really the world's biggest fan of Avi Nissenkoren, the former justice minister. I, not that I disliked him. I just didn't really understand what he truly brought to the political hype? system. Yeah. But when he became justice minister, I will say that 
at least as a voice, it's hard to it's hard to pin down very concrete things because this, this government was so short lived. But as justice minister, he made a real case for protecting the independence of the judiciary, what they call slowing down or freezing the attempts to politicize takeover of the executive over the judiciary. We mentioned it briefly before. And in small ways, he represented that at least. And in a situation where the entire center left has essentially not really focused on that issue, which is now the essential issue. I think it's going to be more central than ever on this campaign. We talked about it with Gael Talshir in our second episode. He did come to represent that. And, you know, for for that reason alone, it's just bad form to enter politics, make one little statement on one of the most important issues in the country and then say, well, I don't I made I made a few bad political mistakes, so I'm leaving. And Lapid offered him to be his number two, according to some reports. I think that could have been great. And, and I just one more thing I want to say about the, the center left. Imagine Ron Khuldaei such a popular mayor becoming Lapid's candidate for the interior ministry instead of Arya Derry. You know, get this Shas guy out and bring the mayor of Tel Aviv. We have to mention, because we have many listeners outside of Israel, that another notable absence from the next Knesset will be Diaspora Affairs Minister's Omri Ankele, which I'm sure the diaspora is already feeling... Suffering. Suffering deeply. Haven't the Jews suffered enough from Omri Ankele? It's never enough. But let's get on to the exciting new names in the Knesset. Who is the most exciting new person for you, Amir? I like Danny Dayan, who is on Gidon Saar's list. I think he was a very good consul general for Israel in New York. Um, I obviously disagree with about everything he says regarding the settlements, the occupation. Um, I also remember, uh, not fondly, his past support for Netanyahu when I think it was already clear that Netanyahu has gone off the rails. But I respect him for now taking a different route and going with Saar and trying to challenge Netanyahu from within the right wing. And if he will get a government position and he will do it with the same spirit that he brought to New York of cooperation, of listening to people you disagree with, that would be good for our political system. Interesting. I agree with your analysis of his personality. Angel, who's the most interesting new person in your opinion? There are going to be three very interesting new women in the new Knesset. Galit Distela Tabrian, a writer who is, who's got the 10th spot in Likud, a very respectable I read spot, her all the time in Yisrael Hayom. Which shows how much also Netanyahu uh, uh, thinks highly of her as one of his uh, most impressive and vocal proxies. She has also a very, uh, let's say, de- well-developed imagination about her own uh, literary success, but that's for another time. I think that uh, Jaida Rinawi Zoabi in number, number five in Merit is going to be a very interesting new MK as will be Ibtisal Marana, number seven in Labour, though she may not... And she's not you, totally you are, new because are, she was also running in Meretz in 2009. Sure. To believe that Meretz number five and Labour number seven will both be in the Knesset <laughs> Very is, optimistic. is crazy optimism, but okay. Okay, well, can I say mine? Yeah. I'm fascinated by Simcha Rotman. I think that uh, you didn't expect me, any of you, to choose somebody from the right, but apropos what we were talking about before, he is the antithesis of uh, Avi Nissenkorn. He is an attack dog against the judiciary in Israel. He thinks that the judiciary is essentially the source of all evil in Israel. And I have had my eye on him for a while because I think that he has very high ambitions in the Israeli political system and very uh, egregious ambitions for completely undermine the independence of the Israeli judiciary. So that's where we are. I have one more tiny little thing that I think is interesting. Rather unknown person who moved, Stella Weinstein, moved from Avigdor Lieberman's party to Naftali Bennett's Yamina. Why do I think this is important because she was considered a big activist and well-known in the Russian-speaking community. And that means that Naftali Bennett, in putting her on his list, uh, is trying to reach out beyond his 
older uh, image of being a sectoral party representing mostly right-wing national religious uh, and kind of move into other sectors. I'll take a bet that just like Netanyahu's attempts in the past to steal the, Ru- the older Russian-speaking voters from Lieberman failed, it will be the same for Bennett. Lieberman Probably. has an iron grip on these voters. I know from my wife's family, uh, Russian immigrants from uh, St. Petersburg, the work that he does on the ground level there is, uh, you know, nobody can rival and it, his but, but, polling, it, but they can try. And, and, his, yeah, polling, and his polling is rock solid at seven seats in almost every single poll. In the first election, April 2019, Lieberman brought five seats from that community, basically from his sofa in the like in his house he didn't even you know i think he was in just slippers for the entire campaign i think i think we're going to have very soon a whole episode on the russian vote i'll just mention that also gideon south's new hope has done the same thing they have zev elkin number three who is a member of the russian but they've also brought in sofia ron maria a name that most of us w- w- don't know, but she is a very prominent journalist in the Russian sector, and she's number 15 on the New Hope list. So all the parties are trying to somehow get a chunk of the Russian vote. I mean, we've talked a lot about the party uh, electoral polls, the horse race polls. Here's a really interesting poll I found this week, and I'm quoting from the report about the poll that said that 85% of the residents of Israel think that there are too many parties. It's better for similar parties to unite and leave maybe two to four parties altogether, which they believe would ensure democracy in Israel. Okay, it's a poll of only Jews. But still, why have the politicians been ignoring this wish since 1948 when that poll was taken? Okay, that's from a great book about the history of public opinion in Israel, edited by Gabriel Weiman, a political scientist. And I think it's worth mentioning. And maybe it's time for the politicians to listen to that. And it's time. I'm in. And it's time for... For the jingle. My favorite part. And you'll tell... This was a jingle that preceded the speech made by Benny Gantz when he launched his political career exactly two years ago. The entire theme of that event was about transcending the old dividing lines between left and right, religious and secular. And for the warm-up speech that night, Introducing Gantz, they chose an impressive 38-year-old local council member from Modi'in, Hilashai Vazan, who made much out of being a religious woman working in a secular world and being born into a Libyan family but also cooking Ashkenazi food. Shai Vazan introduced Gantz that night as the man who would save Israel and went on to serve as a loyal MK in blue and white. Two years later, earlier this week, she announced that Gidon Sar is the only one with the experience and capabilities to return Israel to stability and as Prime Minister lead and heal the nation. Shai Vazan is now number 10 on the New Hope list, deep in the bosom of the right wing, proving that you can be religious and still change your saviour every couple of years, and that unlike Gantz's jingle, right and left are still very much a thing. She'll probably be in the next Knesset, but as things are going now for blue and white, Gantz may not. And that's it for Haaretz's election overdose number six. I'm Dahlia Shenlin. My co-host is Anshul Pfeffer, and we've been speaking with Amir Tibon. We want to thank you, Amir, for joining us today. Thank you. And a big thanks also to our producers, Yonatan Manovich and Amir Fektor. Thanks for listening. We love getting your responses, so keep them coming. For anybody who's asked questions, we're collecting a few, and we're going to start answering them soon. So please keep sending them. Follow me and Anshul on Twitter. Tune in next week to this podcast on the Haaretz.com website or most other major podcast apps. And next week, this campaign begins in earnest. See you then. See you then.